Thank you, Krista, for that ministry and music. Please, sir, can I have some more? Those of you who are fans of the musical theater might recognize that line. It comes from the musical Oliver. Oliver was a young boy in an orphanage in England. As the musical opens, we see the plight of the orphans who have so many difficulties, and one of them is that they are deprived and have very little food to eat. In one scene, the orphans file by a woman who is ladling out very small portions of gruel. She does so under the watchful care of Mr. Bumble, who is the overseer of the orphanage. Oliver, after eating his very, very small portion of gruel, comes walking up a, a long aisle past many of the orphans unto the presence of Mr. Bumble, who is standing in the front. And Oliver comes, trembling with outstretched arms, as he brings his little bowl and says to Mr. Bumble, Please, sir, may I have some more? Well, Mr. Bumble is outraged. And he bellows, More? More? You ask for more? It was totally inappropriate. And so, Oliver is barred from the orphanage, sold to a morticianer to help him in his business because he had the audacity to ask for more. Well, in our passage, we find that Paul comes with great boldness to a merciful and gracious God. And he asks for more, for more love on the part of the Philippians. And God doesn't bellow in disgust, but rather is going to be gracious and kind and quick and ready to answer. For he loves to bestow his love upon his people. As the letter opens, Paul informs the Philippians of his prayers for them. As we begin this study of the book of Philippians, it is beneficial for us to know and to understand that Paul indeed does pray for the Philippians. And that may not seem like something untoward or unusual, except that I remind you of Paul's circumstances. As Paul writes, he is a prisoner in Rome. As Paul writes, he has many needs in his own life. And so there is a certain level of marvel that Paul is concerned about the Philippians and that he prays for them. For all too often, in the times of our own distress and our own uh, limitations and our own difficulties, our tendency is to become self-centered, self-consumed, absorbed in all that we are going through, and we expect that people would be praying for us, as opposed to our praying for them. But Paul, in his imprisonment, prays for the Philippians. And as such, he really serves as a model of a sacrificial spirit that he is going to be stressing throughout the book of Philippians. But Paul manifests that sacrificial spirit. Secondly, we see that Paul, though imprisoned, is still able to minister in a powerful way. Though Paul is imprisoned, Paul is not limited. Though Paul has difficulties, it doesn't mean that his ministry has come to an end, that he can have no beneficial impact upon the Philippians. But rather, we see that Paul is going to be having a very fruitful ministry and the life of the Philippians, even though he personally can't come, he can pray. He can pray. That's really helpful and instructive for us to remember in the times in which we are laid up or the times in which we are restricted, or the times in which we are limited, and we may become discouraged, thinking, what good am I? What use am I to anyone? What value is, in there, is there in my life? 
After all, I can't do anything. Maybe you can't get out of bed at some point in your life. Maybe you're stuck in a hospital. Maybe you are going through some incredible difficulties that have set you aside from the normal circumstances and activities of life. And it's pretty easy to feel helpless and useless. But we find in this passage that Paul has a tremendous ministry as he is able to pray for the Philippians. And likewise, we can have a tremendous ministry, no matter how limited we are, in praying for others, in interceding for the people of God, the life of the church. So Paul prays. The theme this morning is a consideration of what Paul reveals to the Philippians concerning his prayers for them. What does Paul want them to know about his prayers for them? He doesn't simply say, I'm praying for you, although he certainly says that. But he tells us much more than just the fact that he prays. He tells us why he prays. He tells us how he prays. He tells us what he prays for. He wants them to know that they are being prayed for as a matter of encouragement, as a matter of help, as a matter of strength, and as a matter of instruction. And so we want to look at Paul's explanation to the Philippians concerning his prayers for them. What does he reveal? Well, first, Paul reveals the manner in which he prays for the Philippians. The manner in which he prays for the Philippians. He prays with thankfulness. Notice verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. It is God to whom Paul is thankful. Paul is thankful to God. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. It is the Philippians for whom Paul is thankful. That is the proper relationship. We should always give thanks to God. And we give thanks to God for people. For people are oftentimes the instruments of God's grace. They are the instruments of God's working. So we thank God for people. We should thank God for each other. For God has done a work in our life. God has brought us together. And these brothers and sisters that we gather with then are tremendously important in our life and in the life of the kingdom. Not only does Paul pray with thankfulness, but he prays with joyfulness. Verse Four, always offering prayer with joy. With joy, my every prayer for you all. So we notice the extent of Paul's joyfulness. The joyfulness extends to the entire church. Verse 4, always praying with joy in my every prayer for you all. For you all. It includes the entire congregation. Look at verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ, to all the saints of Christ and Jesus who are in Philippi. Paul is writing to each one. Saints doesn't refer to a higher class of people. He isn't, re- he isn't uh, praying for the saints as opposed to the common people. But in the Word of God, a saint is simply someone who is set, ap- set apart. Someone who has been saved by the grace of God. And so they have been sanctified or set apart as the people of God. But not only does he pray for the church in its entirety, but he also includes the leadership of the church. Notice verse 1. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Not that the leaders aren't saints. Not that the leaders aren't included as the people of God. But rather the emphasis is that what Paul is praying for and what Paul is writing to the Philippians about is applicable to every single individual. Every single child of God. Every person who was born again at Philippi, this letter has something to say to them. Not just the leadership. Sometimes we think that there are certain responsibilities duties or positively blessings 
that are reserved for the leadership. You know, the pastor, the elder. We should pray for them and they are going to be uniquely blessed or used of God. Or we may think, on the other hand, that, that well, it's the person in the pew that we need to be praying for because they have some greater needs or they need to develop more, or they need to grow more. But the dichotomy is blatantly false. We're to be praying for everyone. For we all have needs. We all have blessings. We all have unique responsibilities. And so Paul is emphasizing that he is praying for everyone. Whether they be the saints or the leadership of the church. Notice the consistency of Paul's joyfulness. This joyfulness is manifested in all of his prayers for them. Verse 4, always offering prayer with joy. Thus, Paul models the exhortation, which we have referred to as the theme of the book of Philippians in our last message on the book of Philippians, that the theme is rejoicing in God. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice, he writes to the Philippians. In every single situation, rejoice. In every single situation, be joyful. So Paul doesn't just simply exhort, but he models. He is sincere. He is authentic. He is real in his instruction to the Philippians. And so he says that in every prayer, it's offered with joy. With joy. One can look at life and see reasons for complaining. See reasons for disillusionment. See reasons for discouragement. Or we can look at life and see reasons to express thankfulness. Reasons to express, express joyfulness. Reasons to see the work of God. We can choose to be either optimist or pessimist. We can choose to focus either on our difficulties or on the grace of God in the midst of those difficulties. And Paul chooses to focus on the blessings as opposed to the difficulties. And so, there are difficulties, there are problems in the Philippian church. One of them is that Syntyche and Eurydice aren't getting along. And Paul's going to be praying about that. But even as he prays for these two women who cannot get along in the church, he prays with joyfulness. Because he expects God to work. He expects this situation to be resolved. He sees the activity of God even in the midst of that disagreement that is existing between them. The reason for Paul's joyfulness that he gives at this exact moment is found in verse 5. In view of your participation in the gospel. In view of your participation in the gospel. He says concerning that participation or fellowship you may have is that it is from the first day it says until now, verse 5, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, they had participated in the gospel from the very first day of their conversion. From the very moment that these early believers at Philippi came to trust in Jesus Christ, that very moment their lives were changed. At that very day, they began a new life of participating in the fellowship of the gospel. They had a new relationship to God, and as a result, they also had a new relationship to Paul. A new fellowship was entered into in very practical ways. So, let's think about two of the new converts at Philippi. One of them is Lydia. In Acts chapter 16, you don't need to turn there, I'll read it. But we have an account of Lydia's conversion. And a certain woman named Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple, fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to the, respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, 
If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. Come into my house and stay. The very first day that she hears the gospel, she submits to baptism and then says to Paul and to Silas, you come to my house and stay there as long as you're ministering. And even when Paul is imprisoned at Philippi and when he is released, the Word of God says he goes back to Lydia's house. She participated in the Gospel from the very first day by opening her house to Paul and saying, Paul, I want you to stay at my house and may it be a beachhead for your ministry here at Philippi. Secondly, we have the example of the Philippian jailer. The Philippian jailer who, on the very first day of his conversion, participates in the Gospel. The Philippian jailer upon believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, provided medical care and comfort to Paul and Silas, who had previously been beaten by the authorities. In the book of Acts, in chapter 16, we have the narrative of the Philippian jailer's conversion. Paul and Silas are thrown into prison, being beaten ruthlessly by the authorities, because they've been preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. So they're thrown into prison at Philippi, and the jailer has responsibilities for these prisons. Prisoners. Paul and Silas are singing praise and giving glory to God at midnight. And all of a sudden, there's an incredible earthquake. And there are tremors. And the jail is shaking. And the doors of the prison open. And the chains that bind Paul and Silas and the other prisoners fall off. And the jailer, of course, is, is just taken aback. He's amazed and he thinks they've all been set free. So he's ready to commit suicide, knowing that if his prisoners go free, that the Roman government is going to hold him accountable and take his life. But instead, Paul cries out and says, do yourself no harm. We are all here. And the Philippian jailer is amazed. And he comes in and trembling before Paul and says, what must I do to be saved? And so Paul teaches him the gospel. And that night, the Philippian jailer is baptized. And that night, there's a change in the Philippian jailer. That night, he begins to participate in the gospel in very practical ways. The first is found in Acts 16.33. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. Small thing. But Paul and Silas were beaten ruthlessly and they were thrown into prison. Bloody. Bruised. A mess. And the Philippian jailer could care less. Didn't affect him one iota. Not an ounce of mercy. Not an ounce of grace. Not a simple desire to help these men in any way. They got what they deserved. But when he came to place his faith in Jesus Christ, immediately there's a change. And the first thing is that now grace enters his life. Now there's a concern. Now there's a compassion. Now there's an interest in Paul and Silas. And so he takes them out and begins to wash their wounds. He takes the blood off them. He's sorry for what they've gone through. He wants to bring any measure of help and comfort to them that he can. The very moment that he is saved. And then the second thing comes in the next verse, in verse 34. It says, and he brought them into his house and set food before them. He brings Paul and Silas prisoners into his own home. And makes them a meal. Treats them as equals. As guests. Not prisoners. And he wants them to have a good meal. The power of the gospel in the life of the Philippian jailer. Notice these words. And he brought them into his house and, and set food before them and rejoiced greatly. Rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. The Philippian jailer is just thankful to God 
For he has believed, and not just himself, but his family believed in Jesus Christ. He rejoices. And in that rejoicing, he's concerned now about Paul and Silas. Participating in the gospel from the very first day. A person who is truly born again. There is a change in their life. And Paul rejoices in that change. It is good. It is wonderful. It is a cause for rejoicing to reflect upon the grace of God as it's manifested in people's lives. It's good to remember what God has done in the lives of individuals. To just think back. Realize how far people have come. Realize what a wonderful change has been produced. Paul enjoyed reflecting upon the Philippian jailer, upon Lydia, as he sat in a cell. He thought about all the ways in which God had worked. But not only does he give thanks and is joyous because they have in the past, participated in the gospel. But notice in verse 5, in view of your participation in the gospel, from the first day, from the very moment of their conversion, and then these words, until now. Until this day. It is this day. It's good to reflect upon what God has done in the lives of individuals in the past. But it's even greater when you're able to see those life-changing effects in people's lives continuing right up to the very moment. We all know the sorrow of people that we were excited about who made professions of faith who are now not walking with God. Who now aren't participating in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who now are not interested in the things of God nor are they particularly helpful to the people of God. In fact, they may be now opposed and actually against the very things that they once professed. It's a source of great sorrow and anguish. So Paul is rejoicing because they not only participated in the gospel the very first day, but it continues right up to this time. But the real cause of rejoicing You see, there's a development of thought. The real cause of rejoicing is not simply that, well, they participate in the gospel from the very first day, although there's a lot to rejoice in in that, nor that they are presently serving the Lord Jesus Christ, although there's a lot to rejoice in that, but there's a greater cause. Verse 6, For I am confident, I am joyous, because I am confident of what? Of this very thing. That he who began a good work in you will perfect it unto the day of Jesus Christ. I am confident that he who saved you back here and did this wonderful work of transformation in your life is going to only perfect that, only is going to mature it, only is going to develop it until the very day of Jesus Christ. I am thankful because I know that in the future... You're going to be walking with God. And so I give, joy, give my prayers in joyous expectation for the future. Note that this confidence is in God, not in them. I'm confident in this very thing. He who began a good work in you for performance in the day of Christ. Paul doesn't say, I know you Philippians. I know your resolve. I know your dedication. I know what kind of people you are. And therefore, I am confident... Because I know you. No, he's confident because he knows God. And he's confident because of the work that God did in them. But notice that that confidence does not negate the need of prayer. Paul doesn't simply say, I'm confident, and so I sit back and do nothing. But Paul prays out of that confidence. Nor does this confidence in God negate the need of exhorting the Philippian believers. For this book is filled with exhortation. But rather, this confidence inspires 
Paul's prayers and exhortation. This confidence motivates Paul to pray. Why does he pray? Because he's confident in God. Because he believes that God can do a work. Because he believes that God can make a difference. And so he prays believing that God is going to work. Why does he believe it? Because it is God who was at work in the very beginning. He who began a good work in you. Paul realizes that the reason that Lydia was saved is not because of Paul. The reason the Philippian jailer was saved was not because of Paul. The reason that she wanted to be baptized was not because of Paul. The reason he wanted to be baptized was not because of Paul. The reason she opened her doors to him and encouraged him to stay and live with her was not because he had such an engaging personality. It wasn't Paul that was the focus of the Philippian jailer. It was God. God had done a work in their lives. And so now Paul prays in his absence, in his imprisonment, in his helplessness. What can Paul do? Nothing but pray. Nothing but pray. Nothing but pray. Calling upon God, believing that God, who did a good work in them, will continue it. Paul realized that God didn't need him. That the ministry wouldn't fall apart because he was in prison. That God's purpose was overthrown. Or that the Philippians would be helpless with no one to care for them. Now, he prayed with confidence because he believed that this sovereign God who began a good work would continue it in the lives of these Philippian believers. Paul prays out of a deep affection for the Philippians. Verse 7. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all. It's only appropriate. Because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are, are all partakers of grace with me. That they hung in there with him through it all. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. The affection for the Philippians is real. Notice verse 8. For God is my witness. So help me God. As I know my own heart. May God hold me accountable if I am not telling you the truth. I love you this much. I care about you this much. I am this interested in you. Paul's affection was authentic. It was real. He describes it as the affection of Christ Jesus. The affection of Christ Jesus, which can mean two things. First, the affection which Jesus gives. And I believe it means that. The affection that Jesus gives. The love that Jesus gives. God had given a love to the Philippians. Excuse me. God had given to Paul a love for the Philippians. Because they participated in the gospel. Because of all the things that they had done. Because they were now brothers and sisters in Christ. God had given Paul a love for them. And the second way that this simple prepositional phrase can mean the affection of Jesus Christ is a descriptive genitive with the kind of affection that Jesus has. Which also is in view. So Paul is saying, I love you because of Jesus Christ and in the way in which Jesus Christ loves you. I try to model my life after Jesus Christ. I try to live like Him. And so I'm trying to love you the way in which He loves you. That you might experience that love. It is easy to pray for those who are dear to us. The people who are dear to us should not just be our family. Should not just be our children. Our moms, our dads. And shouldn't even just be our very, very close friends. But our love should be for the people of God. We should be concerned about one another because we are part of God's family. And so they are 
We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We should welcome others into the relationship that we enjoy to our immediate family as a result of their being a part of our spiritual family. And so Paul prays for them. Paul reveals the matter for which he prays. Verse 9. The request is that the Philippians' love would increase. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more. It is certainly not that the Philippians are loveless or uncaring, but rather he is praying that it would overbound. It would be abundant. It would be like a river that the banks can't hold anymore. That it would just surge forth this great love for them. He prays that it would abound still more and more, and then these words, in real knowledge and all discernment. How is that preposition in to be understood? In real knowledge and all discernment. Is it a preposition of sphere? In other words, is he saying, I pray that your love may abound still more and more, in the area of knowledge and discernment. In the area of knowledge and discernment. Or is it an instrumental dative meaning through knowledge and discernment? In other words, is one a byproduct? In your love, you will have knowledge and discernment. Or is it a source? In your knowledge and discernment, you will have love. I believe it's not an either or, but a both and. That in our knowledge, it is going to reflect, it is going to reflect our, our love. So that, in verse 9, that it will abound still more and more in real knowledge. Real knowledge. Instruction should teach us how to love. The Word of God should teach us how to love. Listen to 1 Timothy 1 verse 5. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. The goal of our instruction... So Paul writes and says, the goal of my prayer, and then he's going to instruct. The goal of Paul's prayer and the goal of God's instruction is that it would result in love. That's what he wants. That the effect will be that your love grows more and more and more. It also is... The source. As you grow in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, as you grow in your relationship to Him, it will produce love in your hearts. That the Philippians' love would be morally discerning in application. Notice verse 9. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. In all discernment, that you would know how to love. Love needs to be morally discerning. In any given situation, what is the right thing to do? What is the right way to behave? How should we be living our life? We need to answer that in a proper way as we think about love. I'll expand upon that in just uh, a little bit. But notice in Philippians 2 verse 1, if there is therefore any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any effect and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. See that this love would be in keeping with the mind and will of God. So Paul reveals the motive out of which he prays for the Philippians. The motive out of which he prays. Paul's aim, if you will. First, 
that the Philippians would do what is best in the exercise of their love. Verse 10. So that you may approve the things that are excellent. Literally, the things which are different. Many times there are various courses of action that are before us. What is the best way to show love in any given situation, in any circumstance? What is the loving thing to do? What is the loving thing to do? Turn with me, if you would, to Philippians 4, verse 2. There are two women who can't get along in the church. Verse 2. But I urge you, Eudia, and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true comrade, I ask you also to help these women. To help these women. Here are two women who can't get along. Paul says, I urge them to get along, and I ask you to help them. Well, how do you do that? How do you help them? What is the loving thing to do? What would love do? Would, would love just sweep it under the rug and look the other way and say, well, you know, we need to show love, so we're not going to confront this. We're, we're, we're not going to in any way uh, do something that might turn them off or offend them. We better just be quiet about it. Is that what love does? Or does love... Go to them and say, you know, you can't act this way. You can't behave in this matter. You need to confess. You need to repent. What is the loving thing to do? It is often these areas that the people of God can't agree upon. It's often in these very practical ways that we tend to go in various directions because we can't agree on what is the loving thing to do. That's the focal point of Paul's prayer. That your love would abound in knowledge and discernment. That you would understand the Scriptures, you would understand the situation, and you can put them together and act in a loving way. With one mind, with one dedication, with one purpose, without being divisive or destructive. He prays that their love would be Genuine. Genuine. Notice verse 10. So that your love may abound in things that are excellent, or that you may be sincere. Sincere. The word sincere is literally the word, is literally the word without wax. Without wax. Now, that may not mean much to you, but... Uh, in the ancient world, uh, pottery was prized. Pottery was very, very important. Well, as you know, pottery can crack. And the way in which pottery was sometimes mended was with wax. The little hairline crack would be covered over with wax so that at first glance you couldn't see it. It looks like it's fine. And it would be taken to the marketplace and sold. But the only problem is that wax really isn't a fix at all. You get the the piece of pottery home and you try to put some water in it and it's going to leak. The wax isn't going to hold up. It doesn't make whole. It, it, It doesn't achieve its purpose, its end. It's only a facade. It's only an appearance. It only looks good. Paul prays that their love would be without wax. That it would be genuine, to be authentic. Not just to look good on the outside, but really be helpful. Really be beneficial. Really be life-changing in other people's lives. Not put on. Not pretentious. But the genuine, real article of love. Genuine love lasts or endures. Notice verse 10. In order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Jesus Christ. Until the day. Again, this preposition can be used in two ways. 
The until points to a, to a duration of time. A duration of time. In order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Jesus Christ. Until Christ comes, we have this responsibility to be loving. Doesn't stop. Doesn't cease. Doesn't end. It's to endure till Jesus Christ comes. But it also has the effect of a goal. Of a purpose. Of an end. Until Jesus Christ comes. The ultimate expectation. The ultimate hope. We hang in there until Jesus Christ comes and gives us that complete and real and full love of God for Him and for each other. When Jesus Christ comes back, why is life going to be different? And we are going to experience love like we've never known it before. Perfect. Untainted. Paul says, until that time comes, I'm praying for you to love more and more. And then he says, to be sincere and blameless. Blameless. The actual idea here is to do no harm. To do no harm. That as a result of our our love for each other, we don't cause each other to stumble. We don't prove to be a a hindrance, but a help. And again, again, why knowledge and discernment is so hard. Because, again, what is going to be a help? And what is going to be a difficulty? When is it that in helping someone I become an enabler of their sinfulness? When, out of a desire to help them, am I actually leading to their further destruction because I'm not requiring them to stand on their own two feet? Because I'm not bringing against them the the reproach and the teaching of God's Word? When am I, in seeking to help them, failing to really love them as I should? Or, when, out of a desire and love for them, I have a desire to help them. I have a desire to see them repent. Talk to them about their sinfulness. Confront them about their lifestyle. Seek to encourage them to walk the right way. And take what is known as tough love. Where's the balance? Where's the right course of action? When will I really have proved to be the most helpful? That's what Paul's praying for. That knowledge. Boy, don't we all need it? Don't we even need it with our own children? Are there times you just don't know what the right thing is to do? How to respond? How to react? What's the right discipline? How do I motivate them? Oh, that God would give us knowledge and discernment in real and true love. The third aim of the request is that the Philippians would be righteous. Verse 11, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, that they would act Not out of the fear of man, but out of the fear of God. That their ultimate goal is to do the right thing. To do the right thing. Real love comes from relationship to Jesus Christ. Notice verse 11. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. That author of love, that epitome of love, through him, through him, we really show true love and we really live righteous lives. Which brings us then to the fourth aim of the request. And that is praise that we brought to God. Notice verse 11. 
having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The real concern of Paul, the ultimate concern, the highest level, all of these concerns are real. All these aims are important. But they build upon each other. Because Paul isn't just concerned about people. He's not just concerned about Yodica and Syntyche. He is concerned about them. But not just them. He's concerned about the church. And not just the church. He's concerned about Jesus Christ and its reflection upon Him. You need to get along. Because if you don't, it brings dishonor to Christ. You need to show love in the proper way. Because if you don't, it dishonors Christ. Paul's highest motivation is the honor and glory of God. Verse 11. To the glory and praise of God. So the fourth aim is the praise we brought to God. Real love. Real love. True love. Brings honor and glory to God. How? Three ways. First, because it puts God before people. It puts God before people. That we are concerned about people, but we're concerned about people in their relationship to God. Secondly, because we understand that the source of real love comes from God. We love because He first loved us. He teaches us how to love. He imparts love. He demonstrates His love. He gives His love. And so we respond in love. And so when we are loving, it brings honor and glory to God because real love is so different from the world's love. The world's love is this insincere love. This this world's love is the wax. It's the wax. It's this pottery that's glazed over and looks good on the outside, but has no substance to it. I'm a Phillies fan. I don't know if you're a Phillies fan or not. It doesn't really matter. But, sure it does. No, no, it doesn't. Uh, But uh, Dutch Dalton was uh, inducted into the Phillies Hall of Fame. And uh, Dutch Dalton gave an an acceptance speech at uh, Phillies Stadium in front of 40-some thousand people. And he spoke of his concern. He spoke of his affection for the fans. He spoke of how much he cared for them. And so he concluded by saying, we're all family. Come over to my house tomorrow for a barbecue. What do you think you would do if 48,000 people showed up? We're here. Thank you for the invitation. There's not enough chicken to go around. He didn't mean it! It wasn't sincere. It wasn't a real offer. And everybody knew it. It was hyperbole. It was exaggeration. It was feigned. Maybe he really does care about the fans. But he exaggerated in its application. Paul says, before God, may God be my witness. The affection I'm talking about for you is real. The world throws the word love around to such a degree that it almost means nothing today. And we don't know real love. And unfortunately, we don't experience real love. And we don't really even understand love. So Paul prays that our love would abound more and more in real knowledge and discernment with its ultimate goal and purpose to bring honor and glory to God. So in conclusion, number one, we should pray that we would love our brothers and sisters in Christ and our brothers and sisters in Christ would love one another. We should pray that in the practice of that love we be governed through the understanding of the Word of God. That we would allow the Word of God to be our teacher as to what love really is. Not the world. Not the movies. 
but the Word of God. We should pray for insight and application, understanding, in the myriad of circumstances in which we find ourselves in. The plights, the hardships, the difficulties that we see other people in, our fellow employees, our classmates, our friends, our neighbors, our relatives. Our fellow brothers and sisters in this room, what is the real loving response? How should we react to their plight, to their sinfulness, to their heartache, to the grief? What would really be the most Christ-honoring response? May God grant us that discernment. And we should pray That in the exercise of our love, that ultimately, the praise, honor, and glory doesn't go to us, but to God. May we love in such a way that people realize it goes beyond our own personality. It goes beyond our own limitations. It goes beyond our own character. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, long-suffering, gentleness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. You can't legislate it. It's got to be produced by the Spirit. May our lives reflect the power of the Holy Spirit so that Jesus Christ will be praised. What a worthy prayer. And before Paul instructs, he prays. Oh, may that be a lesson to us. Before we go to someone, before we act, before we do anything in our desire to exercise love, let it first be bathed in prayer. May it be received May it be welcomed. May it be understood that what motivates me is love, even as Paul's praying that they would understand what motivates him is love. And may it have its purpose. May it achieve its end. May they be helped. And may God be glorified. It starts with prayer. It's followed in application, instruction, obedience. Let's pray.